Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to Star Talk. Your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to the Hall of the Universe. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. And tonight, we're going to explore the story of NASA's Hidden figures. These are the unsung mathematicians whose calculations helped put the first Americans into space. So let's do this. So my comedic co-host tonight is comedian Sashir Zameda. Sashir! Welcome! And on the subject of tonight, I have some knowledge of NASA's history. I wouldn't call myself an expert. We brought in an expert. We brought in chief historian of NASA, Bill Barry. Bill, thanks for joining us on Star Talk. So, to begin this conversation, first I have the trailer for the film Hidden Figures, just to get a basic idea of what that film is about. Check it out. We go from being our father's daughters to our husband's wives to our baby's mothers. You know what we're doing here? Trying to put a man into space. There's no protocol for women attending. There's no protocol for a man circling the Earth either, sir. I plan on being an engineer at NASA. No matter what it takes. We all get there together, we don't get there at all. My gals are ready. So, Bill, you're the chief historian for NASA. And you advise on this film. I did. So I got to ask, did Hollywood get it right? Oh, definitely. Um, Ted Melfi, the director of the movie, he was a fanatic about trying to get as much of the history as exactly correct as he could. Because so, you always got to give him a little latitude to, you know, because yeah. it's Hollywood. But you want the, the, the basics to at least be correct. Yeah, the big thing that happens in most movies, because, you know, it's not a documentary. It's a, it's a Hollywood movie. Um, and the big issue is usually uh, time compression, and that's what they did in this one as well. The movie takes place in 1961-62, but... Uh, it's John Glenn's launch. So, so Yuri Gagarin was 61, John Glenn was 62 in response. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but uh, what the movie covers is things that happened from the mid-40s to about the mid-1960s. So uh, there's some compression of things that, that happened there, so it's for dramatic effect. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know... I, you know 
I'm, I'm very happy with, uh, with the work they did, and uh, I'm really glad the movie's in the can now because now I don't have to answer all of Ted's questions on an hourly basis. <laughs> How long was that process? Like, when did you get involved with the movie? Um, early in uh, 2016, and they, they filmed in the spring of 2016 in Atlanta. Um, so from about February through um, March or April, uh, we, were, uh, we were on the hook, me and many of my colleagues at NASA answering Amazing numbers of questions, finding pictures of things that they wanted pictures of. Um, okay, so they had to care about this enough to even make your job worthwhile. Because uh, they could have just ignored everything, and then it would have just been a piece of fluff. Yeah, we had, we had some disagreements about some things where, where Ted, you know, Ted said, this is a movie, and I know how to make a movie. And he was clearly right about that. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and so we disagreed on a couple of things where I said, yeah, that, that wouldn't really happen. Um, the, the wind tunnel scene is the key one. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's... She, she watched... Her heels stuck in the seconds before they turn on the wind, the wind tunnel. Yeah, and, and I, I, I told Ted, yeah, Ted, people don't walk to their job through a wind tunnel, right? Anybody, anybody who works at NASA knows you don't walk through a wind tunnel. He goes, he goes, well, okay, so, Bill, how many people in America know about this? You know, how many people work at NASA? I go, oh, about 18,000. He goes, okay, so 18,000 people will go, that's not a good thing. He said, I guarantee you, all the millions of other people watching the movie are going to think this is a great scene. <laughs> Yeah, 18,000 is nothing compared to millions of viewers. Yeah, and I he wouldn't was, have known. Yeah, he was right. Well, so actually, so this film is based on a book by Margot Lee Shetterly by the same title, mm-hmm. Hidden Figures. And she actually stopped by my office recently. And I asked her for some backstory on these female mathematicians and how they got into the aeronautics industry. So let's check out the clip. So during World War II... Um, and we always hear about Rosie the Riveter and the women going into redefining, the factories. Redefining women. Redefining women's work. Well, this is the same thing that happened with the mathematicians. You I know, didn't know this. All of a sudden, there was a huge demand for aircraft research and development. You know, in the 1940s, America's at war, you know, allied versus the Axis powers, supremacy of the sky. And who is going to do the hard work of the mathematical calculations necessary to make the planes faster, safer, more efficient. Plus, it's the boys who are flying the plane. It, it, so it is. It was. Now the boys. you have a, a, an intellectual gap. If some of them would have been the guys, and now all the guys are at war, mm-hmm. now you have women. Or even the engineers who were doing this work, who were also called off to war. Right. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow. Well, maybe we can give these women a chance. Maybe they can do this work. Maybe there are some smart women out there. Maybe there's some smart women. Probably not, but let's give it a chance. chance. What do we have to lose? And then all of a sudden, (laughs) these you know these former school teachers come in and became computers, mathematicians, and junior engineers. Uh, but it turned out they were really good at it. They proved themselves pretty quickly. And when it was obvious that not only could they do the work, they could also be hired at less, uh, lower annual salaries than men, mm-hmm. well, that made a whole lot of sense. And then all of a sudden, 1942, when we're really at war— It made a warped kind of sense. It made yes. a warped, yeah. You know, it made, a, it made a warped kind of sense. A sense in a warped world. It makes complete sense. Exactly, yeah. right? It was a rational decision on the part of the bean counters. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, there were hundreds of women doing this work. Professional it, mathematicians. All right. So I get it that you can attract women into it. Mm-hmm. But if it's still the 40s and 50s, where— you know, darker-skinned people were not in the presence of opportunity. Mm-hmm. How do you get this community of African-American women rising up 
in the middle of this. Yeah, and remember, and this was also in the South, in the Jim Crow South, this, in Virginia. And that, that too. <laughs> I, I don't even know how that had to be impossible. 1943. I think you're lying. You made up the whole book. Well, you know, (laughs) fortunately for us, this is true. This is all true. It's actually true. So I'm just just curious, Bill, but this movie was set in the Jim Crow South, and NASA has centers all across the country, 10 of them, I guess, is the number, north and south, east and west. What was NASA's relationship to, to that era, to the Jim Crow South era? Well, um, the, movie's, well the movie takes place during the NASA period, but, but the pre-story happens during World War II, right? So 1914. Pre-NASA. Pre-NASA. Yeah. So this is the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Fortunately, pretty close acronym, NACA. And so uh, it just happened to be in, in Hampton, Virginia, and um, you know, that was a part of the country you know, where um, segregation was not only um, a policy, but it was a law. But if that was a law for the municipalities, but NASA is a federal, NACA is a federal agency. So are you still beholden to local laws if you set up shop in a Jim Crow county? I'm not sure there's a legal answer to that question. But um, in general, um, when NACA was set up and when Langley was set up, um, it, it absorbed the local culture. And over time, that became more of an issue as the country shifted uh, during World War II, and those tensions came out, and things started to change. So these three women featured in Hidden Figures, did they, were they on your radar at the time? We have Katherine Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are actual people. Yes, they who are. lived. So she calculated launch trajectories for the first, uh, for John Glenn in mm-hmm. orbit. Correct. We have Dorothy Vaughn, first black manager mm-hmm. at Correct. NASA. And so that was Octavia Spencer. Octavia. Yeah, Octavia yeah. Spencer's character. And uh, Mary Jackson, uh, first black female NASA engineer. So they, were they on your radar in the NASA history books? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Catherine Johnson in particular, because she was, she was a phenomenon. In, in, in addition to being a, a beautiful person to start with, um, but she was just mathematically a phenomenon. Um, and it's interesting that when uh, Ted Melfi came to us asking for pictures. He said, I, I want some pictures of these people at work. I said, well, Ted, you know, NASA photographers don't walk around taking pictures of people at work, right? right? right. Uh, you know, they, they, they do for some particular thing and purpose, but, but they don't like, come by my office to take my picture while I'm sitting at my desk. Uh, but we started looking, and there are actually a bunch of pictures of Katherine Johnson, right? And so that tells me that people at the time knew that she was something knew, special. That's an interesting fact. Yeah. Right. That's that alone is evidence of this. Yeah. Now, so, now the other the other two, Dorothy Vaughn and um, Mary Jackson, uh, Mary Jackson uh, very hard to find. We had some pictures of Mary Jackson. Dorothy Vaughn didn't ever like to have her picture taken. So there was one precisely one U.S. government picture with with Dorothy Vaughn in the picture, and she's on the side of the frame, kind of leaning away from the camera. <laughs> so, well, the actress that plays Mary Jackson in the movie was Grammy-nominated singer Janelle Monae. Well, she came by my office as well. Okay. So my office, that's the place. That's the hangout. Anybody who's anybody can buy my office. Uh, I asked her what she thought when she first read the script for the film. Let's check it out. I thought it was fictional. I was like, wow, somebody is finally in my mind. Somebody is finally going to portray African-American women in a different light. We're not going to just be celebrated for our beauty, but for our brilliance. And I was excited. And 
once I was told that these women, in fact, did exist and they were directly responsible for getting our astronauts into space, some of our first Americans into space, um, I was I, I was I was hurt because as an African American woman, I'd never heard of Mary Jackson, Dorothy Vine, Katherine Johnson. Truly, these are American heroes. And I didn't know about this, so it became a personal responsibility for me to stop uh, whatever it was that I was doing and to help celebrate these women who I feel have gone far too long um, without the acknowledgement uh, that, that, that they deserve. Catch those, those half moon earrings. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> She's very spacey in her. She's got, own she got way. a little bit of geek, yeah. geek underbelly there. Totally. Uh, yeah. So, Bill, why, why did it take so long to acknowledge these women? I think there are probably uh, a couple of reasons why that's the case. Most of these women began their work in the 40s. The first you know, women computers there, the African-American women computers started in the 1940s. Um, and what they were doing was largely classified work. They were told not to talk about what they were doing outside the home. So they naturally didn't do that. All these people were from the World War II generation, so that's sort of the second reason. They're, you know, they defeated fascism, you know, doing a little calculation, not such a big deal maybe, they, they figured. But the, the third reason, and, and I don't really have a lot of data on this, but I think the third reason might actually be, to some extent, the, uh, the environment of fear that might have uh, surrounded these people. I mean, these were African-American women who had really good-paying government jobs. Uh, you know, Dorothy Vaughn was making $850 a year as a teacher when the year before she got hired by the NACA. She was making $2,000 a year um, when she came to work for the NACA. Uh, good-paying jobs. Uh, they probably didn't want to draw a lot of attention to themselves in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. So I think... Some of it was a little caution on their part. Interesting. So I asked Janelle Monet in my office with her moon earrings <laughs> about taking on the role of Mary Jackson, who would become NASA's first black female engineer. Let's check it out. Mary Jackson was a different. She was a different woman uh, during that era. A lot of the women, um, with all due respect, because of of them seeing their brothers and sisters being lynched by the way they looked at white people or spoke to white people, were very afraid to speak their minds. And Mary Jackson was not. She was not gonna sit back idly and allow anybody to discriminate against her because of her race, her gender, or her class. And for me, it was just important to have this fearless woman who chose freedom over fear every day she walked into NASA and who was fighting for justice, not just for herself, but for the other women, to let them know that we have the power to change or poke a hole in the matrix. And that's what she did. You know, it's either when, when these people walked in and they knew, okay, our goal is to get them into space. They had to put aside their race, their gender, and we either do it all together or we don't do it at all. Yeah. We just end the show right now. I that know, was, that's <laughs> great. How am I going to add to that? I can't. Uh, Bill, where, where would NASA be today if it did not sort of reach in and tap the full American workforce? Oh, I think we'd have been in big trouble. It was a team effort. Uh, it has been a team effort throughout NASA's history um, to, you know, to do all these things. It's really, space is hard. 
Um, we've been flying people in space for 60-odd years now, but uh, uh, it's still rocket science. Um, and it's, uh, As a matter of fact, it is rocket science. Liter yes. Literally <laughs> rocket science. And, um, and it's, it's not, not easy. So we need the, the most talented people, and the scientific evidence is clear uh, that uh, a diverse workforce, particularly when you're doing the things that have never been done before, a uh, diverse workforce is really important. So NASA puts a really high premium on, on uh, trying to attract as many... Um, so today, there are uh, programs in place to reach for everybody. Absolutely. One of the reasons we, we were so interested in the movie Hidden Figures and, and why NASA um, uh, wasn't happy to be involved in the movie was we saw it as a way to inspire young people today to you know, follow that path and prepare themselves for a future where they could be part of NASA. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> well, coming up, we'll take your questions about the math and science behind America's great space race when StarTalk returns. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with their no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Welcome back to Star Talk. We are talking about NASA's Hidden Figures, a group of black female mathematicians who were pivotal in American space race. And I asked Hidden Figures author Margot Lee Shetterly about women who worked as human computers in the aeronautics industry, not only during the Second World War, but after. Let's check it out. Tell me about this whole concept of a human computer. Right. Computer as a, as a noun that applies to a human being. It did, yeah, and, and it's easy for us to think now, well, a computer is on our desktop, we plug it in, or mm -hmm. it's our phone. It was just, a computer was a job title. It's like someone who computes, and like, it was usually a woman. Like typist. Like a typist. Computer. Yeah, trucker, someone <laughs> who drives a truck, you know? This was, that was their professional job title. And um, it was a, a very important job, uh, not always easy, tedious, eye-straining, uh, but it had to be done right. Otherwise? 
otherwise, well, the plane crashes, the plane crashes, the, you know, the spacecraft does not go in the right direction. Well, let's 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 follow that through. Rosie the Riveter, mm-hmm. after the war, was sent back home, an entire ad campaign to get women back in the kitchen. And Reconversion. Out of the, and out of the factories. Exactly. Because the returning soldiers wanted their jobs back. Yeah. All right. So this didn't happen so much, it seems, mm-hmm. with the female computers after it, the war. It didn't happen that much. Um, Why? They, they had a cutback. Well, I think it's because aeronautics was still booming. You know, so oh, so we won the war. The war, but the whole industry it was, was burst. It was, it was. We, you know, we won the vo- the war. You know, the Allied powers won the war, and a lot of that was because of airplanes. You know, and it was like, okay, we we won the war. What are we going to do next? We're going to fly faster than the speed of sound. Nineteen forty-seven. You know, yeah. so right out of the war, it was like, okay, supersonic flight. You know, and then after Every that, next, everything. Ev- and then it was about the Cold War and the Soviets and the Korean War and. All of that was with airplanes and beating the Soviet planes. And then in 1957, we had Sputnik. So we've got like this whole series of things in which women doing these calculations and these computations were needed to help America achieve the next step on the space ladder. So it took, it took the threat of dying <laughs> to say, okay, we need anybody who can help us no matter your skin color. I would have preferred it happened, gee, this is the right thing to do. But no, that's, that's asking too much probably, particularly in the day. I think, I think that's a great question. I mean, is it possible for us to have technological expansion, opening of the workplace without having a defense threat? Yeah. Is it possible? No. I don't, I, I'm not sure, but it hasn't been possible. <laughs> yeah, so Bill, would you agree it takes a national security threat to, to spawn that kind of advancement we saw during the space race? You know, a, a national security threat opens up uh, spending on uh, an investment on, on research um, and of all sorts, and it also sort of loosens up the boundaries on lots of other things. So I think, you know, uh, progress happens faster during, during those periods. When people don't want to die. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, a, that's a strong motivator. Yeah. So let's just uh, relive some of the history of this. So the Russians, 1957, fly Sputnik. And by some accounts, it was just, oh, it's just a, it's just a satellite. And then you realize it was a hollowed-out ballistic missile shell with a little radio transmitter. And so we needed to one-up them on this. So, in the day, how important were these human computers to NASA, politically and militaristically? They were essential. I mean, you know, you had to have people doing the computing work to get the job done. And so, uh, you know, could we have beaten the Russians to the moon in the 1960s without, um, you know, Katherine Johnson? Uh, Yeah, could we have, you know, beaten them with one arm tied behind our back? Probably, maybe, eventually. But we certainly wouldn't have beat, beat the Soviets to the moon in the 1960s. And they're doing all these calculations by hand. Yeah, it, they did. Uh, the women computers were always extraordinary people. I mean, these are people with, with uh, math skills that, uh, that certainly boggle my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, do we still have people like that? You know, a small cohort of people that could do that sort of thing? I think probably we can we find NASA still employs people who do that sort of work. But not manual computing anymore, but, but uh, you know, writing the computer programs and making sure they work properly. Uh, so that's an important part of the job. And so that brings us to Cosmic Queries. Yes. Right. 
We took questions from our fan base about math and science behind the space race of the 1950s and 1960s. So what do you have? All right. From Frank Kane of Orlando, Florida, what was the balance between human and computer navigation in the Apollo era? Ooh, good question. Uh, Bill. Um, actually, the first contract for the Apollo program was for the uh, guidance computer for the Apollo spacecraft because they knew that was going to be the hardest thing to develop. Um, and so, uh, at least during the Apollo era, most of the navigation was done um, by computer on the ground. There are computers on the ground that, that did navigation work, and also the, the uh, guidance computer. Just so the they don't miss the moon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It, it's kind of important not to miss yeah, the moon. Yeah, yeah. Or, or Earth when you're coming back. If you shoot for the moon and you miss, you hit the stars. Oh, I heard that one before. All right, next question. Um, at pdruck1977 from Twitter says, if you take away the modern computers, how would today's physicists manage alongside the 50s physicists? I can give you my outlook on that. I, I think I am the youngest person to have been formally trained on a slide rule. Hmm. Because the year I learned how to do a slide rule, how to operate a slide rule, was the same year the four-function calculator dropped in price from $200 to $30. And the next month, we abandoned slide rules. Yeah. So I'm formally trained in them. But anyone younger than I am yeah. is not. So if this is an apocalyptic fact, mm -hmm. and you take away all computers today, I think everyone's hope. They, they, they'd look at a slide rule and wouldn't, wouldn't know what to do with it. I wouldn't know how to tell. Yeah, we, we, they, I think your people back in the 50s and 60s would dance circles around us today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, I was, my class at the Air Force Academy was the first class to be issued calculators instead of slide rules. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's 1975. Yeah, that's about when that was. Yeah, yeah. Well, are we the same age? What, 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 what? I, uh, I, I just rolled over the big 6-0. 6-0, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. I get that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Hey, we, we got that Next one. one. <laughs> Abe Froman from Facebook asks, what part of the moon landing was the hardest to calculate? Ooh, I don't know. Ooh. Hmm. What part was the hardest to calculate? Where to put the lights? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'm just saying, I was saying that they're recording it because it's a, from the studio, because it's fake. Oh. oh, please, please don't say that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> she can say, she's a comedian, she can say anything. That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but I'll, I'll tell you, we, we post uh, things on the NASA um, history, Facebook, and Twitter account, and every time we post something about the Apollo land as a picture, we get the trolls come out and talk about how it never really happened. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what planet they're I know it's on. real. Yeah. I yeah. believe. Um, He's okay, not authorized so, to comment further on that fact. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, so back to the question, the hardest part to calculate, I, I think um, one of the issues, and maybe Neil, you, you understand this more than I would, uh, the moon is not an even gravitational field, so there's mass concentrations uh, on the moon, and so it was hard to tell uh, where they actually were trajectory-wise as they were going around the moon. It wasn't until we had a better map of the, the uh, gravity field of the moon that we actually know better. So Interesting. I, think that's, I think that threw some of the landings, particularly the first That's a great one. point, because if, if the moon is like, heaviest in the middle and it gets lighter as you get to the surface, typically that's how that works, then the gravity field around it is perfectly symmetric. But if there's a mass concentration a little off-center, then the orbit feels that. And your orbit then does not take a perfect shape around. And, you, and if you want to know where they are versus where they should be, uh, yeah, you got to know. Excellent, excellent point. All right. 
Paul Disberg from Instagram asks, when they arrived at the moon, were the actions of the astronauts solely political, parentheses, planting the flag, or did they do scientific research as well? Uh, the, the first things they did were science. I mean, the first thing... No, the first thing they did, they planted the flag. Uh, they did that before they did science. Uh, they scooped up a, uh, The first thing they did, they, they scooped up a sample of dirt. That Wait, they did it. that before they planted the flag? Yeah. I didn't see the that. The first thing they did was step. <laughs> okay. They took a step. And say a, a few things. Right, right, okay. Neil said a few words, and then uh, they, they walked around, and they, they handed off equipment and, and did some stuff, and then they, they put the flag up eventually. That's true. Um, and they had it, and on the first one, they had a talk with President Nixon that was, you know, um, mm-hmm. a symbolic. As Nixon too. said, the most expensive phone call ever placed, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, the astronauts on the moon largely did, um, you know, they were there to do scientific work. And so there was, there was a very long checklist of things they had to uh, crank through. Um, and as we stayed longer on the moon on later missions, that list got longer and longer. They eventually had to give them a car to get driving around so they could find things on the, on the last three missions. So, uh, I like Jerry Seinfeld's reaction to that. He says, this is typical guy behavior. <laughs> they take a rocket to the moon but they still want a car to <laughs> drive around. Why not? How American can you get? Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, my favorite experiment they did on the moon in the first mission was to lay down little reflect, uh, mirror reflectors, corner reflectors, they're called, that will beam back a laser that you send from Earth. And you time that laser beam, and you can get to very high precision the distance to the moon. And upon doing so, we learned what we had suspected, that the moon is spiraling away from Earth at about two inches a year. And one day we will no longer have total solar eclipses because the size of the moon will not be large enough to cover the sun. That experiment is still in use. It's still in use. Oh yeah. Who, so there's a laser that goes from here to the moon. Oh yeah. We got, yeah. We got (laughs) lasers. We got got lasers. We got lasers. Wow. Lasers, we got that. All right. (laughs) Do you have one now? Yeah, I don't. Divulge that fact? Yeah, yeah. No, we got lasers. If we got anything, we got lasers. Cool. <laughs> well, coming up, Bill Nye the Science Guy, good friend of mine, shares his thoughts on the pioneers of America's next space frontier. Let's start talking with her. American Museum of Natural History, right here in New York City. We are talking about the role of women in the American space race. And I asked the author of Hidden Figures about what it must have been like being a female professional in the 1940s and 1950s, and how the women featured in her book dealt with that reality. Check it out. Let's go back in time and just tell it like it was. So, smart women... Mm -hmm became school teachers, or possibly nurses. Possibly nurses. You know, what could you be? A a secretary, a nurse, a school teacher, I might have left one out. Yeah. Okay? And that's kind of it. That was it. If you're fully educated. Right. For the middle class professions, that was basically Sorry, of course. Right, right, right. All right. So now, when you're a school teacher, you are a school teacher until... Mm-hmm. Until you get married. Until you get married. Then you're no longer a school teacher. <laughs> and then you are asked to tender your resignation. You are, you are a baby maker in the kitchen, yep. possibly bare feet. Uh, barefoot. All right. So were these women married? Uh, they were married. They were married Did they have teachers. kids? They did have children. They did. Yes, they stayed. 
yet they stayed. That's really important information. Bill. Why were these women an exception to the traditional role of women in the workplace? I think the main reason was that computing was always women's work. I mean, think back to the computers who worked for astronomers. Uh, it was generally yeah. We, we had that early back yeah. in the turn of the century. Yeah. So that, and it was generally work that the guys didn't want to do, so they gave it to the women and the women, menial work. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, in fact, we have an interesting memo from 1942. Uh, where they asked the NAC, a company asked the NACA about the computing pool and what they thought about it. And the NACA folks who wrote back said, it's really great because the women get about twice as much work done as the men and they're much more accurate and we don't have to pay them as much. Right, right. Oh, right? that's in a memo. That's in a memo, yeah. Yeah, wow, okay. So during the war, they were able to bring women in to fill in men's jobs, but they were short of computers too. And they, there weren't more women with math degrees. And so 1943, the door finally opens up and they say, hey, these smart black women who, who are teachers who know math, let's bring some of them in. Uh, so, so that happens during the war. Then after the war, high-speed research, the you know, flying supersonic and, and the space race, all that stuff is, is a high priority. You still need these women to do the computing, and, and they have a, a particular job skill. So, um, and, and a good computer was, was worth their weight in gold. You wanted to keep those folks around. So there are all these strange things happen. You know, the typical rules for women after the, after the World War II were, you know, you, you get pregnant or you get married, you got to leave, you get pregnant, forget it. And if you have kids, you, you, we don't want you, right? Not true for computers. Uh, computers get married, they keep coming to work. Right. Uh, the computers, uh, they get pregnant. We act, there's actually some evidence that we found in the archives of, of supervisors turning a blind eye to very pregnant computers and ignoring that until the very last minute when they actually had to let them go have their babies, right? But then they had their babies and many of them would, would come back. You know, they, they wanted to come back to the NACA and, and be a computer again. Come on back. They, right. they got their jobs back because they were so highly prized for that, those particular skills and their ability to, to, you know, do those calculations. And they would have been particularly rare because back in 1950, our data show that about 30% of women worked outside of the home compared with more than 50% today. Yeah, they're really an anomaly in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. 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 During the space race, they're doing things that has never been done before. They have to think outside the box, the proverbial box. So do you think that culture is fundamentally more open to different kinds of people participating in it? I think so. That's one of the nice things about working at NASA is that um, it's an engineering culture. NASA's an organization where uh, someone says, show me the data. That's, everybody's like, yeah, okay, that makes perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, and people are willing to follow the data wherever it goes. And if, it's, if, if this is clearly what the answer is, if what matters is how you perform and not how you look, uh, then that's the data and let's go with it. So, uh, and of course, in the old days, all the astronauts were sort of military pilot types and all the same skin color. What's, what is the NASA profile today of the astronauts class? Um, well, in fact, we just hired a, a brand new astronaut class this I heard summer. about that. A lot of press surrounding that. Yeah, but people are really excited about it. Um, it's a very mixed group. The first um, classes, first class of astronauts that, that was not just all white guys mm -hmm. uh, was the class of 78, which is the first group. Um, the shuttle. First shuttle. Yeah, yeah. The decision to, to use military pilots was actually an interesting one. Um, back in the 50s when NASA was first thinking about hiring astronauts, 
they were they were originally going to advertise for circus performers and mountain climbers and and they had this long list of professions that people looking. who get shot out of cannons this kind of thing yeah, yeah. They, yeah seriously uh-huh. they, and and uh, then the question came up well how are we going to be able to insure these people and and do you have to get security clearances on them and there's always difficulties and they went to the president Eisenhower over Christmas time in uh, 1958 and, and said well you know we're gonna, this is what we're going to do to advertise for astronauts. And he said, what are you, crazy? He says, we can solve all that. We just get some military guys and bring them over because they already have security clearances. They'll do what we tell them to do. And they're used to these kind of you know, dangers. And you don't even pay them very much. And we don't have to pay them very much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so. I still want to see a circus person go to space. <laughs> so the astronaut corps looks very much like America. How about the rest of NASA? Does that follow suit as well? Yeah, I, I, We've got uh, about 18,000 people work at NASA, mm-hmm. and um, uh, about a third of them are women. Well, so uh, regarding the, the modern-day workforce at NASA, we have someone joining this conversation. We have NASA engineer Tracy Drain. Tracy, right now, are you live on our video call? Oh, there you go, Tracy. Hey, Tracy. What? So, Tracy, what do you do for NASA? I am currently a systems engineer, and right now I'm the deputy chief engineer for the Juno mission, which arrived at Jupiter last July. Love me some Juno missions. Uh, so I bet I am not alone in asking you this very basic question. What is a systems engineer? That's right. <laughs> when you think about something that is complicated, like a car, you might have people who focus specifically on how to build the engines or how to build the chassis, and et cetera. Just like with spacecraft, we have telecom and propulsion and thermal. A systems engineer is someone who's not an expert in any one of those systems, but works with all of the experts to ensure that what we're developing, the thing that's going to work all together as a whole. Oh, so if the whole thing breaks, it's your fault. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so everything's got to work together. That's right. Whoa, okay. And so, so that's cool. What, uh, now, I, this might be like picking your favorite child, but what is your favorite mission that you've worked on? Or what's the coolest thing you've done <laughs> in your career so far? I might get into a little bit of trouble for this one since I've been on Juno for the longest time in my career. But I have to say that my heart still belongs with Kepler, which discovered so many exoplanets and has just changed our whole understanding of the nature of planets in our galaxy and in the universe. And I'm actually about to transition onto a mission called Psyche, which is going to go visit one of the more interesting asteroids in our solar system. So I'm slowly working my way around the solar system in my career. Well, very good. Well, thank you, Tracy, for joining us uh, on Star Talk. All right. Excellent. So, up next, more on the hidden history of the mathematicians that put the first Americans in space when Star Talk returns. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome back to Star Talk. We're featuring my interview with Margot Lee Shetterly, author of the best-selling book, Hidden Figures. It's a story about pushing the boundaries of what we can accomplish as humans in a divided country and the unity found in the pursuit of having pushed those boundaries. And I asked Margot how a group of black women in Jim Crow South 
could become heroes of the space race. Check it out. Before the civil rights movement meant Martin Luther King in right. the 1960s, sure. there was a guy named A. Philip Randolph, labor leader, mm -hmm. uh, the largest black labor union in the country. And he said to then-President Roosevelt, open these war jobs to Negroes. Tear down this wall. Tear down this wall. <laughs> we, we want to participate in the bounty of these war jobs. I mean, the, course, we Roosevelt were coming was, out of the Depression. Roosevelt was very labor-supportive in his politics and in his philosophies. And, and so, so he's like the right guy to bring this message to. Well, and it took a little bit of a, you know, maybe a little more than that, because uh, A. Philip Randolph said, if you do not open these jobs, we're going to convene 100,000 Negroes in the national capital, Washington, D.C., which maybe wasn't something that Roosevelt wanted so much okay. to happen, <laughs> particularly as the country's on the eve of war. And so instead of doing that, um, they came to an agreement and Roosevelt passed Executive Order 8802, desegregating the federal government and opening these jobs to African-Americans, but also Mexican-Americans, Jewish-Americans, essentially prohibiting discrimination on the part of the federal government and the defense industry. Two years later, five black women walked through the door at the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia. And so they had a white computing pool, and they had a black computing pool. And everybody knew it wasn't called the white pool and the black pool. It's called the East Pool and the West Pool. Everybody knew uh, that the West Pool was the pool with the black women. Um, but they also had uh, colored bathrooms, and they had a colored cafeteria. Um, and, you know, their path ended at the moon. Yeah. It's a great line. Path ended at the moon. Um, could you just put some context around this period for what NASA was doing? Sure. Well, the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory, to give it its full name at the time, now the NASA Langley. And Langley was a, a, an aeronautic pioneer at the yeah. turn of the century, if I remember correctly. Uh, an unsuccessful one. But, yeah, that's right. But, but his successor at the Smithsonian picked the name. Okay. And so that's how it wound up being Langley Memorial uh, Aeronautical Library. Yeah, he wasn't the one who figured out how to fly. No. Uh, yeah. No, there's a really great story about that. But so. That apparently you're not going to tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the Wright brothers um, learned how to fly. Um, Langley made two attempts to fly his uh, aerodrome with a pilot on board, and both of them failed. Uh, he launched it off a houseboat in the, in the Potomac, and both of them crashed. Uh, and the last one was about two weeks before. Two weeks before the Wright brothers. brothers successfully flew. He'd gotten a lot of money from the government to do this. Uh, the Department of War had asked, asked him to build a, an airplane. So you wind up with um, Langley not succeeding, the Wright brothers talking about how they succeeded, and Langley winds up actually dying a broken man a couple years later. Oh. Uh, his successor at the Smithsonian, a guy by the name of Walcott, uh, Langley was the head of the Smithsonian at the time. Uh, Walcott winds up being uh, the guy who's in charge of the executive committee of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, and when the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics decides to build a laboratory, he decides that we're going to name it after my former boss who probably would have flown first if those Wright brothers hadn't gotten in the way. <laughs> that was a funny story. It's sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I didn't say it was a funny a story. Right, man. right. <laughs> it, it is sad. Interesting. A lot of people that worked at Langley were wonder why it wasn't called the Wright Research Center. Well, my friend, Bill Nye, the science guy, has some thoughts on what the space frontier ought to look like. Let's check it out. Greetings, Neil. We're here at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum on the west side of New York, New York. Now, during the space race, astronauts like 
John Glenn would go streaking above the Earth's atmosphere at 17,000 miles an hour in little aluminum cans like this one. There was a lot of mathematics involved. And the people who did the figuring were often women who were virtually hidden in the workforce because of their ancestry. But consider the following. After you light a rocket engine and the fuel starts burning, with every moment that goes by, the rocket weighs less. So how much fuel do you start with? How high will it go? Where will it land? Someone has to figure these things out. It's rocket science, my friends, and the problems don't care who solves them. But those problems were solved by the hidden figures of the space race. Back to you, Neil. <laughs> Up next, choosing imagination over fear just to find America's place in space. When Star Talk returns. Welcome back to Star Talk from the American Museum of Natural History right here in New York City. We're featuring my interview with actress and singer Janelle Monet, one of the stars of the Oscar-nominated film Hidden Figures. And Janelle plays one of the female mathematicians that helped launch the first Americans into orbit. And she says she's a nerd in real life, too. I love it. Check it out. I just want everyone to know that I am a proud geek. I'm a oh, proud nerd. Card carrier. constantly learning. Um, I think that it's important to be around smarter geeks. You start looking at things differently, and your ideas and the collision of ideas creates this sonic boom. So, telling this story about these three women who did this, knowing that there were women who were geeks, and they were beautiful, and they could be both, is so inspiring. And so I just hope that people know that you just, you can be a cool, creative geek and change the world. Yeah. So Bill, so NASA's kind of famous for geek culture, I think. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, of course, Langley Research Center is uh, 100 years old this year, and there are mother centers, as we've referred to them, the, the first center of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, and then the other ones grew from there. Um, ten centers, lots of exciting stuff going on at NASA. Every one of those centers are people doing exciting work, uh, just like we have astronauts 250 miles above us right now at the International Space Station uh, doing research. And what are you saying? Geeks are spread around the we're whole We're all country. over the place. <laughs> well, I asked Hidden Figures author Margot Lee Shetterly what key lessons she would have us learn from this story. Let's check it out. Never let fear get the best of imagination and curiosity. You know, I mean, it takes tremendous imagination to send someone to the moon. I mean, this ball of light in the sky, and we're going to send somebody all the way there and put them in this little tuna can and put them on a candle and send them out. No, not a candle, a bomb. A bomb, a, a, a controlled bomb. bomb. You know, yeah. <laughs> we're going to send them, shoot them out there. I mean, that takes a, a hell of a lot of imagination to, and then we're going to bring them back safely. We're not just going to let them leave. We're, we're going to bring them back. It takes gonads. It, it, it really does. And it takes imagination to see to gonads. Do you see what I did right. there? That's yeah. the gender neutral way. Very, very good. <laughs> very modern. Yeah, see? Um, you know, and it takes a lot of imagination to say, well, any of us can do any of these things. You can be a woman, a black woman, and do math. You know, that you could look at anyone, any of us, and say, well, you know, 
Let me imagine what that person might be. Right, but then there's a place where the rubber hits the road, and that's access to opportunity. It is. So that's where the, that's the where perseverance matters. The perseverance is another thing. And really, you know, and one of the things that I think um, speaks to that, you know, that Katherine Johnson, when you ask her, well, listen, you were a black woman in the segregated South telling your boss that you could do the math to send the man into space and get him back safely. That man, that military man. That military man, <laughs> that like clean cut, buzz cut, you mm-hmm. know, all American guy. Right. And, uh, you know, and meanwhile, there's the segregated bathroom and the segregated cafeteria. You're a woman. You know, what did, how did you know how to do that? And she says, you know what? It goes back to something my dad told me when I was little. And he said, listen, he said this to all of his children. You are no better than anyone else, and no one is better than you. And, um, you know, if we live in an environment where we're always afraid of the future, and we're always afraid of each other, and we're, you know, we're just paralyzed by fear, well, there, is, there will be no progress. You know, we, we have to let our imagination and our curiosity triumph over fear. You know, I think ultimately that's what the space race was about. That's what these women were all about. You know, allow curiosity and allow imagination, our better, the better parts of our nature, to triumph over fear. Whoa. So, Bill, how would you summarize the legacy of the women featured in this, in Hidden Figures? I think that when, when we're at our best, you know, um, when we're doing our best work, um, we were looking at, at uh, excellence and inclusion to get all the best talent onto the work that needed to be done. And I think that the, the case of these, uh, these women in particular shows uh, what, you, what the benefit is of doing that. Um, and you know, for, as a NASA historian, uh, I could say that the verdict of our, our history is clear. Um, it's not, uh, not the package that you come in, it's the performance you bring to the job that makes the difference. And just showing representation to people will inspire other people to keep doing these kinds of things. Like, I think this movie, Hidden Figures, is huge for people to know that these are women that existed and that they could do the same thing. When I think of a workforce doing whatever, I don't care. You can ask, who comprises that workforce? Is it one demographic, one skin color, one gender, one religion? And you realize we created these tribal boundaries among us. I am this group, you are that group. We will do this, you will do that. And as a scientist, I'm thinking, what's going on? Science doesn't care what religion you are, what skin color you are, what gender you are. The value of pi is the same on this side of the Earth as it is on the other side of the Earth as it is across the universe and across time. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised that it was science and science's cousin, engineering, that brought people together. People that laws had them separated not only by skin color, but by gender. Science knows no color boundaries. It is not only international, it is universal. That is a cosmic perspective. 
You've been watching Star Talk. I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. As always, keep looking up. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.